Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, the euro. Is it the main problem with Europe? And if we didn't have it, would the EU be a better place to live? And perhaps, would we still want to be part of it? This week, we ask, is the euro to blame for European disunity? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, the euro is 20 years old this year. It was launched by the Maastricht Treaty, of course, and Jean-Claude Juncker kicked this year off with a tweet saying how the euro has delivered prosperity and protection to our citizens. It's become a symbol of unity and sovereignty and stability, which all sounds pretty good, but I think he might be the only person on the planet who believes all this. But Steve, if the euro didn't exist, uh, would we have Brexit, do you think? No, I don't think we would have Brexit because a major factor behind why people voted for Brexit uh, was the impact of, uh, of people coming to the UK under the free movement because the economies they lived in were tanking. The worst example, of course, was Greece, so there aren't that many Greeks to make the move. So what people would have found more often would be uh, some Spanish. I certainly found quite a few Spanish waiters working around town. All very good if people are moving because there's vacancies and positions and they enjoy the weather in England better than they enjoyed in Spain. Uh, of course, anybody who did that <laughs> would need their head read. So uh, what is actually moving is the push factor, which uh, Wynne Godley identified brilliantly in 1992, just after the signing of the Maastricht Treaty, which, in George Kildonka said, it was the most important signatory ever made, and I suppose in the same sense as signing your own death warrant, uh, that is a pretty important signature. Uh, he said that the only if, if a region has no capacity to fisc- fiscally stimulate and has no uh, recompense for effectively a trade deficit, uh, the only options facing are terminal decline with migration, uh, emigration or death, the only way out. And in Greece, of course, we're seeing that net emigration. There's more people. I mean, we were seeing quite a big reduction in the population of Greece. But it's all relatively recent, isn't it? Because until 2008, things weren't doing too badly. We were were seeing growth right up to 2008. It was really the global financial crisis that, that changed things. And that seems irreversible. So why? Because until then, it looked well, fine, didn't it? I suppose the basic analogy I can give is a bit like saying a boat with, ho- with huge holes in the hull works fine as long as it's going fast enough for the hydrofoils to work and take you above the waterline. As soon as the global financial crisis hit, bang, you hit waterline and start sinking. And uh, and it's not so much sinking as the captain deciding the best way to manage the boat is to hit more holes in the side so it takes in more water. Uh, it, it is just an insanely badly managed, badly designed uh, monetary system. And if you take a look at the data, and of course, that's one of my fixations, uh, what has actually happened has been the euro appeared to be working between 2000 and 2008, because across that period of time, the countries that were running trade deficits within the euro, and of course, that involves uh, Greece and Spain and, uh, and, and Italy, 
to some extent, uh, certainly France as well, they were compensated by enormous borrowing, mainly from French and German banks. Mm. The whole free movement of capital thing meant that uh, the 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 uh, drain, not the drain, but the lack of stimulus from the government side by the enforcement of the three percent maximum. A, a government deficit rule. The lack of that was made up for by a gigantic increase in the level of private debt. And uh, it's just well, in every last country where the euro where the, where the euro is in operation right. and the country's running a trade deficit. So why can we blame the euro for that, though? Because we see private debt racking up in lots of other countries, like, of course, Australia. Oh, yeah, we do. And, and the thing is, uh, the, what that meant was that while, while, and this is a global phenomenon, this is what they call the great moderation was actually a, a debt driven, a credit driven boom in the global economy. So it's not just, uh, not just the euro that experienced that it was, as you say, it was a pretty much a global phenomenon. Uh, the thing is, it all worked fine until you hit the crisis. Now, when the crisis hits, uh, to give an idea of the scale of, of, of the stimulus that uh, America went through, uh, the level of st- spending in what you might call the um, uh, the uh, Obama stimulus uh, was equivalent to four to three times the size of the New Deal. Mm. We all know how important the New Deal was to America. Yeah, uh, there are some some Austrians who who challenged that, but that enormous stimulus. From the, from the government spending made up for the fact that the private sector was massively deleveraging in countries like America. So you went from uh, credit demand being 15% of GDP before the crisis to minus five after, but then it very rapidly recovered to back, uh, back up by, two, by 2010, it was positive again, and you had uh, stimulus from the private sector spending as well as stimulus from the government's sector spending. But uh, that wasn't possible in the countries that were tied to the euro. So to give you a comparison, and Spain was uh, by far the, the, the most uh, extreme example of this. Um, just to give you, uh, America's, start with America's data first of all. In America, the level of private, uh, private debt, uh, which is the change in private debt, which is what creates credit, uh, that reached 15% of GDP and appealed to minus five in the aftermath, and now it's running about plus seven. So 15 up to the global financial crisis and then yeah. minus five after. Yeah, right. okay. Spain, on the other hand, went from about 80% of GDP right. in roughly the start of the euro to 220% of GDP by the time the crisis hit. Credit demand hit 35%, almost 40% of GDP, and fell to minus 10 and has not recovered. It temporarily hit positive for a short while in 2015 or 16. Right. But it's been negative all the way through. So what you've had courtesy of the, the imposition of the, of the austerity policy is not just a lack of government stimulus. It's also being a private sector that's continuing to delever, and therefore you have two things sucking demand out of the economy. The only way you can compensate is for GDP to continue falling. So how much of that, though, is the fault of the idea of the euro and uh, how much of it is just the way that it's been implemented? How much of it, in other words, is this this idea of, well, we must have austerity to get ourselves out of a crisis rather than growing out of a crisis? Well, it isn't just austerity as part of the crisis. The whole focus of the euro was the belief in the responsible government spending as it defined as defining responsible, meaning keeping government debt low, as if that had been proven to be the cause of all previous financial crises, when quite the opposite is the case. Mm. Uh, where my colleague Richard Vague has shown that every last crisis that's occurred in the last one and a half centuries in about 150 of them around the globe have always been private debt crises, not, not government debt crises. Right. But the obsession about low government debt is a German thing, particularly, um, swallowed by a lot of neoliberal economists as well and neoliberal politicians who, who uh, parrot what their 
economists tell them. So that that combined with the three percent uh, deficit uh, maximum deficit target was the, the, the that was built into the design of the euro. Now, if at the same time the euro had uh, involved transfers between countries running internal trade deficits, then it would have been nowhere near as extreme. But of course, it didn't involve that. So if you were running a uh, if you you had a, a, a a trade deficit with Germany, and most of Europe has a trade deficit with Germany, and uh, and you also had um, high inflation, higher inflation than Germany. And no, we're not talking massively larger inflation. Italy's inflation rate is a, a whole three percent over the um, well, actually closer to two percent, which is which is the target set in the in the treaties mm. that formed the euro, a two percent inflation rate. Germany has hit one. Well, over over twenty years, that gives you more than a twenty percent cost advantage for German goods versus Italian goods. So all these things could have been fixed up if there was uh, an internal transfer mechanism, as in taxes paid in Germany would be distributed to spending in, in Greece and well, Spain. Yeah. That, that's, that happens in America, but not in Europe. Yeah, well, and, and, and of course it happens if you look at any, if we, if we look to Europe as one country rather than a, a, a series of countries with one currency, um, then what would happen? You would, ha- you know, as happens in Britain or, or, or any country which is concerned about, uh, you know, the regional dispersal of the economy, it's, uh, you'd say, well, okay, we're going to spend, invest in those areas which need that investment. Because otherwise, you'd have the same issue in the UK, wouldn't you? Well, we do to a great extent. Well, you do to some extent. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, not, it'd, it'd not as bad. We'd, yeah, it'd be worse. It would be yeah. worse, exactly. And yeah. so if you look at Europe the same as a country, um, then it's very easy to see, isn't it? Just not investing in regional aid and regional assistance. But the problem is in Europe- the depopulation of those areas, again, something that Wynne Godley spoke about in 1992. Yeah. And it's even happening in countries which are considering joining the Euro, such as Croatia, uh, who was then stubbing part of, part of the conditions to form, become part of the euro is to achieve these targets for government spending and achieving those targets for government spending it means if you do have a depressed region you effectively can't do anything about it so i was uh, driven i've been I've spoken a few times in croatia and i was driven once from zagreb down to um Pula. and as we went through a couple of the villages my my hosts and driver casually remarked that these villages have no more people living in them Mm. And I said, where have they gone? They said Zagreb or the European Union. So what you happen have is, is courtesy of this inability to spend, you have depopulation of areas that aren't, that aren't growing rather than government spending to compensate for the fact that they're not growing. So surely Europe has, I mean, if it's to continue to survive, it needs to address that issue of regional imbalances, just as any country does. Otherwise, you know, you, you become massively unpopular. Uh, you can't have one centre of, uh, of the economy, which is making all the money, which is what we're seeing with Germany. It's what we're seeing to an extent, as we say, with, with London and the southeast in the UK. So shouldn't the, the focus be on a more equal spread for the economy. And can you do that still with the euro? You could, but you know, and you certainly could have done it if it was formed in 1948, uh, 40, you know, 1449, but forming it in 99, uh, after Europe had got over the, the, the Second World War, and when you had an, an end to that, not an end, but a decline in that feeling of you know complete solidarity in Europe, 
mm. um, after getting a, a bit of a bit of uh, mild punishment of the Germans, nothing like what happened after the First World War. And that's you've got to give credit to the leaders back then who decided not to be vindictive in the way that uh, the French that was vindictive on the Germans after the First World War. Right. Uh, but it would have been politically possible then, to some extent, to talk about a union, even though. Um, you know, it, it, it's, imagine somebody talking about the the uh, the uh, the Asian Asian Union. You know, China and Japan joining together after the Second World War never would have happened. The cultures are just too different, even though they use the same script. Mm. Um, <laughs> in Europe, of course, you have the same level of disparities and so on, yeah. and the same identification with the, with a national which is effectively the same in America, having an identification with Alabama rather than America. Now, there are some Americans who are like that, but the, the, the level of spending by the American government is several orders larger, several sizes larger than government, state or local spending. Whereas in Europe, I think the total, total deficit of the European Union itself is of the order of 2% of GDP, total accumulated debt, uh, and all, all the European... Uh, revenue systems do is finance the operations of the European Union. And by, by far, the majority of spending is done by, pardon me, the governments of Europe, which are equivalent in that sense to the states of the United States. Yeah. So you think Germany, basically, it's too late now because Germany is just too big and too far ahead. And uh, so it would be, so Germany would have to feel a lot of hurt if we were to say, well, okay, let's try and uh, create more unity across, uh, across Europe. Germany would have to pay a lot for it. And then we just can't see that happening. Well, in that sense, it's true. But Germans have also suffered because a major way, part of the way the European Union has uh, tried to achieve competitiveness is by suppressing wage rises. Mm. And this is a major reason why Germany is more competitive and has a lower inflation rate than Italy. It's at the same time as they were pressuring the rest of Europe uh, to cut back on wage rises, to cut back on inflation and hit their 2% target, they're pressuring Western Germany, German unions not to put up wage demands. So in many ways, West German workers have suffered courtesy with this whole thing, not as much as as, Europe, as, as Italian or, or Greek workers, obviously, but they've certainly suffered uh, compared to a, um, a, a program that focused upon industrial growth and investment rather than cutting costs and yet if we look at the uh, the gini coefficient i don't know whether you think the uh, gini coefficient is a, a, an effective way of measuring uh, you know the diversity or, uh, or or the egalitarianism of society i guess it's a measure isn't it, of, of, of wage discrepancies or income discrepancies mm. uh, if we look at it for the eu 28 to 2016 uh, it's around 33 the u.s is over 38 and the european number has actually fallen since the early 90s so uh, up to 2016 if you believe those figures then europe is becoming more equal rather than rich and poor suffering a bigger divide yeah, well, I think what that, that they relate. I mean, the Gini coefficient is an accurate, a good measure of inequality. There are others that are better. There's a measure called the Thiel measure, which my good friend Jamie Galbraith uh, prefers to use. But uh, in what he calls the uh, the uh, YouTube, the University of Texas Inequality Project, recommended for those who want to research inequality properly. Um, but what that really says is you don't haven't had the same. Uh, wage dispersal within the finance sector versus the rest of the economy and not the same dispersal between workers and capitalists as you've had in the rest of, rest of the global economy, like America in particular. So it's, it's the absence of those factors that mean you have a more equal um, distribution within, within, within the European Union compared to America and certainly compared to the UK as well. But it's not 
uh, the case that that represents uh, achievements in inequality caused by the euro. It's really that, uh, I mean, probably it's partly cultural. There's actually a, one book I'd recommend to people to get a, a feeling on European capitalism versus American capitalism, and for that matter, Japanese. There's a book by a guy called Andrew Schoenfeld uh, called, I think, Modern Capitalism, written about 30-something years ago or 40 years ago. I read it back in my undergraduate days. But it gave you a feeling for the different characteristics of different national classes of capitalism. And in that sense, the Americans are much more uh, devil take the hindmost, whereas the Europeans had that more of that social democratic tradition way back then. So you're not going to get the same. If you if you had the same level of inequality uh, within European Union as you have in America, then I think the whole thing would have been toast long ago. But we, I mean, you'd have to say I mean, up to the global financial crisis, those countries of Central and Eastern and Southern Europe have increased their average income relative to those richer European nations. So that has to be a good thing, doesn't it? Well, it depends on how it's been financed. And again, it's financed by a credit bubble. I mean, again, mm. to give the, the figures for Spain, amongst the most dramatic, not, not, by, not, not the most by far, but certainly close, when the euro began, Spain's private debt level was, had been pretty much constant since 1964. It fluctuated up and down a bit, but it was about, and I'm just looking for and I can't get well, accurate figures off this graph, but it was about 70, 80% of GDP. As soon as the euro comes into existence, bang, a huge credit bubble in Spain. That's what really financed the increase in incomes. And that took debt from 80% to 220% of GDP in about in less than a decade. Now, if you spend, and that's you know coming out at about 1.4 times GDP, if you spend 1.4 times additional GDP as GDP is rising too, uh, with the credit foundation, you're going to look pretty damn good. But it then comes crashing down. So in some ways, what the euro did was accentuate the credit instability um, aspects of capitalism that Hyman Minsky warned about. But if you if you didn't have the euro and everyone just kept their own currencies, but we were developing this this free trade agreement involving 28 different countries, 28 diverse economies, uh, you would, as we see in free trade agreements, uh, we'd have countries saying, well, OK, you can't subsidize. You can't undercut us with government subsidies to sell on this uh, on this open market. We'd still have that same issue, wouldn't we? We'd still have. But you'd well, have currency. You'd have currency devaluations. But you'd also, and- but you'd also have government saying you you can't put money in to subsidise your industry uh, and compete uh, unfairly, which of course is you know the the argument we're getting between China and the United States at the moment. Yeah, well, in that case, the sense it's a, the the the, the um, euro has always been a neoliberal project, and, and this is one reason I've been a critic of it from the outset because people, I mean, this particularly I think it comes from people who are European. Of course, I'm an Australian. You know, Johnny come lately in terms of arriving in in the European Union in two thousand. 2014. And I didn't, of course, I'm too young to have experienced the Second World War. And I don't have, my parents didn't experience the Second World War. So I don't have that same, we must keep together at all costs feeling that's obviously a large part of the political sentiment towards the European Union amongst Europeans. But that also means that I can sit outside it and say, just who wrote this stuff? Mm. You know, who drafted it? And it's just a completely neoliberal idea of making government as small as possible, eliminating as many controls on private behaviour as possible, allowing free movement of labour and capital, uh, and no matter what, it's basically, it's, it's, it's Paul Samuelson's textbook as a, as, as a constitution. Well, Vince Cable is saying 
you know, from the... Oh, uh, boy, that's going to be trustworthy. Yeah, what's he saying? <laughs> well, he's saying we should stay in Europe to reform it. You know, that, oh, yeah. that should be... Oh, yeah. Should- I mean, I, I went, when I was coming out and saying I was for Brexit, not because of what I thought it would do to the UK necessarily, but because of what I thought of the European Union itself, I made a comment about being undemocratic. And somebody on Twitter, forgotten who it was, Andrew, somebody or other, I think, popped me a tweet saying, look, it's democratic. Here's the structure. Well, I just basically burst out laughing. First of all, the politicians can't draft the laws in the European Parliament. They're drafted by the bureaucrats. Mm. Well, gee, that's good. Um, get a job in the European Union and start drafting laws. And guess what uh, qualifications you need to get a job in the European Union uh, Commission? Okay, before you finish this point off, but the irony is if we uh, accept, that if we become, uh, if we accept Theresa May's deal uh, and you know the, the arrangement that we've got, we're going to have a, a whole swag of, of European regulations which are going to be redrafted uh, by the bureaucrats in, in Whitehall. Uh, rather than by politicians. So we're going to have yeah, well, exactly you, the same you, situation. You can change them. You can change those. I mean, one of the whole proposals was to, was to adopt the entire lot, holus bolus, and then go through and knock off the ones you don't like, which yeah. was Not quite by- feasible early on. Now, she's been outmaneuvered by the bill. And this is the Yanis's point. Don't try to negotiate with these bastards. They'll run you around like crazy. Uh, nobody will ever be home when you knock on, on their door. It'll be somebody else's responsibility every change you want to make. You're stuck with what they want, and they want to expand the European Union. And when you read Junker's ridiculous set of tweets and all, all the pay-ins to the euro that have been published out of Bureau Brussels over the last month and a half, you can see why they are wedded to this because it's their belief system. Well, not all, obviously. Uh, but is Juncker part of the problem? I mean, is he the main problem, actually? I mean, if you look at the uh, the day before the Brexit vote, Juncker was there saying, well, you're not going to, you know, Britain's not going to get any more out of Europe than it already does. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was baiting people almost to, to, to vote for Brexit. And he does seem to enjoy <laughs> when he's sober. He seems to enjoy grandstanding uh, and uh, giving us a hard time. I wonder whether he's actually the, the main problem. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a way that... Is it the euro that's the problem or is it the EU and the way it behaves? And if there was a more an approach, which was, yes, we need to ensure that there is a a balance of income across the EU. And if that means some countries have got to pay from their from from their taxes or from their or from their governments money to other governments, just as uh, some states in the United States subsidize other states and just as people in the south of England pay for the uh, for the for the maintenance of facilities in the north of England. If we took that approach, it wouldn't be a bad place, would it? Wouldn't be as bad. I mean, you still have the issue of the absence of tax redistribution or revenue redistribution through the government. But uh, I take your point. It's partly people like Juncker and, and they're just blind weddedness to the European Union. I must say, actually, that uh, I got a surprise to see a, a tweet by Vito Constanza, who's one of the uh, executives of the European Central Bank, effectively is mildly but nonetheless saying we have to reform the Maastricht Treaty to allow more fiscal uh, fiscal flexibility for the states of the European Union. Right. And I wrote to him and said, like, I'm delighted to see you say that. He said, I've been saying it for a while. You haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but he sent me an article of his in 2014 arguing the same case. So there is internal pressure for reform. But again, if you read Giannis Varoufakis' adults in the room, you'll see that the whole thing is politically was dominated by Schäuble. Now that Schäuble's not there anymore, it looks like Junkers in a dominant way. And there is no democratic decision-making process within it. The decisions are made by the finance ministers. In the past, they all kowtowed, quite literally, to uh, Schäuble. Now they seem to be uh, effectively admonished by Juncker, but 
on that front. He's not, he's not as strong a personality as Schäuble was. So it comes down to the strength of the personalities rather than the democratic process, which I think the European Union is almost devoid of. So how would you reform the Maastricht Treaty then? Well, if, if, uh, if it was possible with the politics, what, what sort of reforms would you introduce? Well, one I, one I would actually bring, it sounds quite crazy, but it's quite simple. Any country that underachieved the inflation target would be forced to pay its workers higher wages to cause the inflation, because that's what actually I think is in many ways has caused the whole thing to come unstuck. Uh, this isn't my idea. I met, I met an economist at an Italian conference who made this case, and I think it's quite quite sensible. If the inflation rates had been the same across the whole of the European Union, then the gaps in competitiveness that have bro- uh, broken up over the last 20 years wouldn't have occurred. So in that sense, even the 3% rule would have been easier to bear with. Um, but because they, you know, Germany underperformed on the inflation deliberately, by pushing down wages, by telling its trade unions to demand lower wage rises, that's given Germany a low rate of inflation, and that's caused that tra- that uh, you know the the, just the the massive imbalances that have led to Germany having effectively a ten percent of GDP trade surplus, which is, you know is a world bloody record, but it's not the sort of world record you want. What would so happen? Would, what would happen if you just said that? Well, the same minimum wage across the whole of uh, across the whole of the EU. I mean, that would be well, just- that, that that unfortunately is impossible because you have a huge difference in the industrial strength of the different countries. So Germany, imagine Germany's wage in uh, in Greece would bankrupt yeah. any Greece manufacturers of anything. Um, because the technology advantage, the, the this is the. But if you're looking for unity, ultimately, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying you do it in one go. But if you say in ten years, that's where we want to be, and progressively, this is what we're going to do. We can, yeah, can, 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 yeah. Can, you, you can set, set targets in terms of wage levels and say we want to reach a you know a minimum wage in terms of local costs. So I wouldn't I wouldn't do it away from looking at local cost levels as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if you go to Spain and see what you can buy in Spain with a euro versus what you can buy in the Netherlands or Germany, uh, then there are advantages. So I, I think that would have been a reasonable idea, and that would be a non-neoliberal target because it would say that the the, the purpose of this is to improve working standards of the average person, uh, which I don't think you would find in the uh, in the principles of the European Union. And how do you stop the uh, the massive migration that we have been seeing, which is, which seems to be the fundamental problem that most people have? Uh, well, I think it's 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 again the problem of belief that the free movement of labour and capital uh, is a desirable social objective. Free movement of capital is what's given us tax havens, and uh, and then that even even within the European Union, that's causing hassles because of the way Ireland has exploited that for its own advantage. Um, but free movement of labour works when there's not push factors pushing people out of their own countries. Normally, you don't migrate for the fun of it. Uh, you migrate if you get a better job offer, and that's the case for, for, for moi, for moving from Australia to the UK in the first instance. Or you migrate if you're being bombed, the, 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 the shit's been bombed out of your country, which is what's happening in Syria. So if you remove the push factors, if, you have, if all the economies are growing comfortably, you wouldn't have had the scale of movement of people that we've seen Anyway, it would have been people moving for, for you know, job-specific spe- job reasons um, or for lifestyle reasons, but it, it wouldn't have been the, the huge movement we're seeing. Yeah, in fact, you might have seen migration from the northern to the southern to enjoy a better climate. Um, but free movement of, of its of capital and certainly has been a, a major cause of the disparities in the UK, uh, in the European Union, and free movement of labour as well. I'm very much a fan of migration 
um, as a way of, of mixing cultures, but I do appreciate the argument people make in the opposite direction. You want to be able to maintain your cultural integrity. You can do that only with a low level of migration, not when it becomes an overwhelming one. Well, surely you can do it by saying, well, okay, you can only come here if you've got a job. You know, if uh, you know that you can't speculate and be unemployed in in a in a country for a long time, but within Europe, if you if you want to move for work, if you've if you've got a job, then sure, move. Yeah, well, that, that's that's pretty much what the case. What the UK is trying to bring in, of course, with the usual obnoxious uh, elements that the UK under, under May loves adding to things like that. Well, like saying but, you've got to have an income of thirty thousand pounds. That's right. Uh, yeah, just, you know, well, you, you can move if you're wealthy. <laughs> yeah, uh, worth hardly wealthy being thirty thousand pounds, but a lot of European, uh, maybe British workers earn a lot less. Not, than ma- that. not many fruit pickers uh, earning that amount of money, for example. Not many, not or many nurses either. Workers or not nurses, many nurses absolutely. either, and a few bloody academics and journalists yeah. and and. Uh, and you know, and uh, it's yeah. just a Acad- academics and journalists. What do we? We don't need those. Look, what about um, if we if if the euro? Because a lot of what we've been saying today is that it's not the euro so much as the uh, the policy that sits alongside it. If we did, and of course, the euro started as the ECU, the uh, European Currency Unit, which was a trading yeah. unit between different countries. Is there is there any reason why we couldn't go back to that? Where we and what what impact would that have? So if we had a euro and local currencies, in other words, can can they coexist? Yeah, I think they can coexist, and this is something I've, I've been arguing for a while that the euro should return to being an inter-European uh, currency for international trade, while they themselves operate with their own national currencies. That'd be an effective arrangement. Yeah, and and if, if, if that's something which the European Union would consider, then we might get out of this hellhole. But uh, you can tell from Juncker and the and the pay end of the twentieth anniversary of something that has increased sovereignty. Holy shit! Um, <laughs> there's no way he's going to back down on. Not, and you know, you're dealing with people who are delusional. Well, while countries have given away basically their economies to the euro, what do, what do their central banks do? Because we have the European Central Bank, obviously, which mm. determines monetary policy for the for the uh, for the eurozone. But I mean, there's still a Greek central bank. What does it do? It's pretty much a branch of the European Central Bank. I mean, if you look at what happened under under the under the uh, the um, um, Syriza, Syriza government in uh, in Greece, the uh, one thing the European Union said was at one point they shut the ATMs down and the decision, the power to do that resided with the governor of the central bank of, of Greece and he damn well went and did it. So in that sense, they're branches. Some of them also have printing presses. Unfortunately, the, uh, the, the, the Greeks destroyed, this is also required as part of joining the, you know, you had to destroy your printing presses if you create your local currency. Mm-hmm. And then some, in some cases, you have uh, local currencies for printing particular denominations of the euro uh, currency, mm-hmm. but I don't believe Greece has any. Um, I, think so they, I think they print some euros. I think they've got a little. They, they, maybe, the, but there's a small denomination. I mean, if you could yeah. print the if you could print the fifty and uh, the twenty and fifty euro notes, and just go gangbusters printing those uh, under under national direction. If if Syria had uh, occupied the central bank, which frankly I think they should have done, uh, because it's a foreign. It, it's it's not like independence. Uh, it's 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 a, it's a it's a it's a foreign domination of your of your central bank, mm. but they didn't do that, and uh, and so partly the the process of shutting down the Greek financial system, which was a large part of the the blackmail that was used to try to get people to vote 
uh, for the European Union's uh, austerity proposals in Greece. That's been the function of those central banks. And how much of the, you know, the uh, dissatisfaction that we're seeing now in, in Europe is... Um is economic and how much so for example the the yellow vest protest that we're seeing in france which actually started as an opposition to a fuel tax uh which you would have thought actually would be a good environmental story but that's what kicked it all off but it seems to be getting worse and worse but there's a lot more authoritarianism coming out of all of this as well i mean the french uh, prime minister edouard philippe is now planning to ban unauthorized protests uh, and you can't wear masks at demonstrations and that sort of thing. It's all becoming quite heavy-handed, which is nothing to do with the economy, but I guess they are linked in in, in some ways. I mean, we are seeing disunity, uh, the complete opposite of what Jean-Claude Juncker said is happening in Europe. We're seeing the complete opposite of it. How much of that, right. is, how much of that is economics and how much of it is politics and this belief? Well, the economics, belief the economics, that- is, economics has caused the politics. Yeah. And this is the horrifying thing, that this failed economic policy, a failed vision of how the economy operates is leading to the exact opposite of what the European Union was supposed to achieve, which is bringing Europeans peacefully together. In fact, it's making them war with each other, not so not at the moment across national boundaries, but certainly within, because the people who are suffering from this are the workers and the unemployed and the low, low paid. And, you know, this is the classic Macron thing, I'll go get a better paid job, uh, as if it's your fault that nurses and doctors get paid lousy wages. Yeah. Crazy argument, isn't it? So if Europe goes from bad to worse, whether Britain is part of it or not, can you see the euro collapsing? I mean, you, I, th- I think your, your your vision is that, uh, or your belief is, anyway, I don't know if it's a vision, that might be going a bit far, but your belief is that Europe is, the EU is going to fall apart once once Britain leaves. But I'm not so much about Britain leaving, there's also Britain being the sort of soft option. If Italy left... Uh, then, yes, you'd be talking about a breakdown of the euro. I hope it breaks down. Of the down. euro or of the EU? Um, I th- well, if one goes, I think the other will follow. But do, uh, does it or, do, or does does the disappearance of the euro actually save the EU, where everyone goes, well, okay, we just need to go back to being a trading bloc? Uh, it could do that, but if you're going to have people who are willing to, to take, a, take a backward step, and I certainly haven't seen that capacity uh, amongst the um, uh, European Union leaders. Mm. Interesting times, isn't it? This is all going to steamroll quite quickly, I think, this year. Well, the, the yellow vest is a major factor there, and particularly if they start, and apparently I saw a comment this morning saying that semi-automatic weapons have been issued to the police to fight them now. If you start having French people being shot by the French uh, police, or particularly as we're now seeing there is a European army, if the European army moves in there to help suppress it, then yes, okay, we could see international conflicts breaking out within Europe because of the European Union. Well, I hope you're wrong. Uh, let's follow so this. So do I. <laughs> we'll follow this story. I'm sure we'll talk about it in future editions of the podcast. Great to talk, Steve. Thanks, mate. And that is it for now. Thanks. Next time, economic theory and the digital economy. How much are we trying to apply theories developed for production-based economies and applying them to economies driven by knowledge, particularly when a lot of those initial theories were wrong in the first place? We'll look at the economic theory and the digital economy next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.